if you're thinking about how to prep for something that is chaotic, I would think another thing that would be really important would be to figure out how to control those spikes of, of cortisol and adrenaline and to maintain that focused mindset to be able to handle those things. Um, and so I would think that that's twofold. It's sort of what's actively happening in the moment and how you can use your brain and re body resources to kind of calm down and be focused. But then also, I think there's sort of passive factors, which is what you're doing before and around that to prepare to have that calm mindset. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. All right, welcome to episode 49. Our guest today is Kristen Allen, who is a two-time world champion in acrobatic gymnastics and a member of the USA Gymnastics Hall of Fame. She's performed with Cirque du Soleil, she's toured with the 2012 Olympic team, and she's taught celebrities gymnastics on the BBC. Currently, she's the chairwoman of the multi-million dollar National Gymnastics Federation and an investor in early stage startups with Future Communities Capital. Kristen is just absolutely amazing, and there's there's just so much depth in this episode. She basically teaches a masterclass on visualization and mental training, setting up and for excellent performance in the most high-level events you could think of. She talks about active and passive protocols for handling pressure and uncertainty, and really most importantly, she dives deep into the idea about finding balance between searching for ultimate performance and what it means to really be human. In case you can't tell, I am really excited about this episode. Now, there's a little bit of static at the beginning, but just power through it. It's definitely worth it. If you like what you hear in the podcast and you want to dive deeper, you can connect with us through our newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, by going to emergencymind.com slash sign up. Or you can check out our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, available at Amazon or basically anywhere, or at emergencymind.com slash book. Now, if you already have a copy of the book, I'm going to ask a favor, which is would you please consider leaving us a review on Amazon, on Goodreads, or wherever. It really helps us get the message out about what we're trying to do here at the Emergency Mind Project. Okay, all that said, I hope you enjoy this episode even a quarter as much as I did making it. I think there's just so much awesome stuff here. All right, hope you enjoy. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've been really excited to have you on. I think there's just like a ton of different wonderful directions to take this in. So thank you for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Right on. Uh, so you are um, somebody who performance and specifically performance in like a very big stage has been part of your life for a really long time. Uh, when you were first starting out, what was that like? What were some of your first memories of, of really sort of being conscious of performance as its own thing, separate kind of from the skill that you were performing? That is such a good question. Gosh, um, that takes me right back actually to my very first competition ever. Um, I probably was maybe eight years old. Um, and I remember kind of blacking out like I, I, I got out there, I did my thing and I got off the floor and I couldn't remember any of it. And I'm pretty sure I forgot a couple of things along the way, moves I was supposed to do. Um, and I think that was my first experience really realizing like, okay, like I need to do some mental preparation in order to really be able to stay 
um, present through all of this is I was just so overwhelmingly nervous. Um, and, uh, I didn't want that to happen again. Mm. And was that, um, when you walked off after that first time and you're feeling that sensation of like, you know, what the hell was that? Like, what, was that a fun feeling? Was that a terrifying feeling? It was, was a terrifying that a- feeling, I would say. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I really loved doing my sport. I loved practice. I loved training, especially in the, in the very beginning. Um, but that first competition experience really opened my eyes to how different it was performing in front of people, in front of judges versus just you know, being in a gym with your friends. How much did they prepare you for that? I mean, as, as you think back to like, maybe even just like the night before or the week before were folks talking to you about, Hey, this is going to, just so you know, this is going to feel different the first time you do this for real. Um, or, I mean, I'm not even really sure how to translate that to an eight-year-old in a lot of the, in a lot of the time, but yeah, gosh, it's, it was so long ago and I haven't thought about it for so long. <laughs> I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, yeah, because, you know, I, I was such a young person at the time. So I, I'm sure my parents probably said something to me about it, but I really don't remember. I, I doubt I would remember anything from my eight-year-old brain either. I don't think that's a pretty normal <laughs> yeah, response. I distinctly, distinctly remember the experience of competing and remember feeling like that blackout of, of gosh, I can't remember anything, but the moments leading up to it, I, sure. I don't remember. Sure. And so as you, as you roll yourself forward in time, then like uh, at some point I would imagine, um, or let, I guess, let me ask that at some point, was there a switch where you started to become aware of the mental pieces of performance as both different and intimately linked to the physical pieces of performance? Like when yeah. did, when did that first become sort of a thing for you? You know, I want to say my dad really played a big role in that for me. He was, he still is, you know, in his sixties, a great athlete and was really interested in the mental side of sport. Uh, He was a competitive skier, sailboat racer, windsurfer, and just at a high level at all of those things. And he was really great about always in in a very calm and non pressure kind of way, just let letting me in to kind of thinking about, okay, the mental piece is probably just as important, if not more important than the physical piece. And we can go into that and kind of what, what tools I used, but I think that was kind of that time period was when people were really starting to have that conversation. People started having sports psychologists, you know, it was how, sort of how can you keep your head in the game? Because you can have all the ta- talent in the world, but if you can't perform when it counts, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you handle that part of the pressure? Right. Because I, I think a, a big similarity between, um, you know, your world and, and my world or the world of a lot of listeners to this podcast is that same idea. Like you can have the knowledge, you can have the training and the skill, but if you can't bring it to bear the words that we usually use, if you can't take your knowledge and deliver it to the patient where and when they need it, the knowledge doesn't do a ton of good. 
so we don't have to go all the way back to, to, you know, eight-year-old you, but as we put yourself sort of back in time to earlier versions, what were some of the skills that you brought to bear on the mental aspects of performance? And I mean, that could be anything from like how you trained to what you did in the moments before actually performing. Like what were those, what were those sort of early, like, I don't know, proto skills like? Yeah. So my parents were really smart at the time and took me to a sports psychologist. I was probably 12 or 13 at the time when I kind of first got on to national team. And so we talked about a couple of things. Um, and the main ones at the time that I really used were visualization, positive self-talk and controlling your intensity level. And so we can kind of go through what each of those are, but Visualization I used all the time um, in a couple of different ways. One way I used it was imagining myself doing my routines or my hardest tricks and kind of imagining myself being in my body and what that felt like. And it was a way of, of gaining more practice, especially in a high impact sport like gymnastics. Um, you could actually practice these tricks without putting that load on your body by visualizing them. So I would visualize multiple times a day um, my routines and my hardest tricks. And one of the strategies that she told me was, if you find yourself jumping between first person and third person, usually it means there's some kind of mental block there. So there'd be some kind of moment, maybe I was doing a full twisting double. And as I'd be coming out of that first flip into the second flip, I'd jump out into third person. and be watching myself doing the trick rather than in my body and that would be the part that i would constantly mess up i didn't have a clean transition into that second flip so i would spend so much time visualizing to try to get myself to really be in my body and feel how that entire trick felt oh that's that's so cool i you know we we use something where we sort of call it don't pass go visualization where like you really you have like you're visualizing putting a line in or something like you're, you're going to drop this central line into somebody's neck and so you're you're visualizing every single step of the way and you don't skip anything if you realize you don't know where this particular hand should be then you need to go back and run it again until you figure out where that hand should be mm -hmm. But I've never heard of this idea of focusing on the flip between first and third person for it. That's a really interesting signal to pick up on. Yeah. Yeah, it was one I used a lot to kind of think through where my mental blocks were. Huh. Um, so that, that's visualization. And then positive self-talk is one I used a ton and still continue to use. And that's really thinking about what are your thoughts telling you at different times and kind of being aware okay, is this a negative thought or a positive thought? And we can kind of go into that more specifically with gymnastics or a physical task, which it sounds like there's a lot of that in what you do as well. Um, but instead of saying, you know, don't shake or don't mess up, it's thinking about, okay, what is the positive action that I need my body to do? So whether that's push through my hands or make sure my hips are lifted, um, you know, these are things I would say to myself uh, while I was doing a trick or before a trick. Um, I would think about the context. Instead of don't anything, it would always be, okay, what's that positive action? So that then you're not leaving room for other possibilities. Right? If you say don't do something, then there's a million things to do where 
if you're just giving yourself one positive action, it's pretty difficult for your body to do something different. So constantly thinking about that, um, that's the more technical side of it. But then on the other side, you know, also really thinking about what are you saying to yourself? Like, are you being kind to yourself in your mind? Um, are you saying, gosh, Kristen, you're so stupid for messing this up. Or am I saying, no, I can do this. I'm great under pressure. I'm great at whatever it is. And one I really remember using was my coach would always say, um, okay, last one, last rep of whatever this is. And a lot of times you would mess up that last rep and then you'd have to do another one. And I never wanted to be the kid who had to do a million one mores. I wanted, if it was one more, I was going to do that one more. And so every time my coach would say, okay, one more, I would say to myself, I am amazing at one more. I'm going to nail this. And I would nail that one more as often as I could. And then that creates positive reinforcement, positive feedback loop. Then, you know, you have built up the, <laughs> this repertoire of every time doing, nailing that one more. Um, so then you start to believe, okay, I actually am great at one more. And so that's just one little story of, of using that. Um, and then the last one is intensity level. Uh, so that's, do you want to be really amped before this particular performance? Or do you want to be really calm? And so when you think about that in the context of sport, a golfer would need to be incredibly calm, low heart rate. Um, maybe a boxer would need to be super amped and have a much higher level of intensity going into their match. So kind of controlling for that. Um, and in my sport, we have different types of performances. So for some, you want to be a little more amped and for others, you want to be a little calmer and you can use breathing techniques and visualization to kind of get you in the right mental place for that. All right. This is, this is so cool. There's like a, there's like a million things that I want to talk about here. Um, so I, I need to start though, with a question that like totally exposes my ignorance of gymnastics in any meaningful way, which is as you're doing one of your tricks, as you're doing one of your moves, um, what, and I'm not, I'm for a moment, I'm not talking about visualization. I'm talking about, you're actually, you're actually on the mat, you're performing your move. What are you thinking and feeling in that moment? Are you, is there enough spare uh, cycles of your brain to actually remind yourself little things like tuck your heel or, you know, shift your weight? Or are you so uh, in the moment of flow and the thing that you're just sort of feeling the ride of it? And, and what are you feeling in your body as you're doing that? Yeah, that's a great point. I think some of that comes down to the level of mastery. So mm -hmm. we can talk about it in layers. So in the very beginning, your mind can really only hold one thought at a time, right? So in the beginning, if I'm trying to do a handstand and someone tells me to point my toes and I'm probably gonna fall over because now I'm thinking about my toes and I'm not thinking about balancing anymore, right? I can't hold both of those things in my mind at the same time. But as you improve over time, certain, certain tricks sort of become part of your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And so now, okay, I can do a handstand. I can also think about where my legs are in my handstand and I can layer that. And now I could maybe be on one arm and also be moving my legs. And I can think about all of that. 
But in the beginning, I couldn't even think about anything other than staying up. So sort of, I think about it in these layers, layers that sort of move into your subconscious and then you can focus on the next layer and be thinking about that. So there does come a point I've found, and I think it happens around 10,000 hours. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the 10,000 hour rule. Um, and you really, and, and they've shown brain scans that actually show this where the activity moves from the computational part of your brain into the subconscious part of your brain and when you hit a certain level of mastery and you really feel that when when you're doing it where a lot of the thought has to change from actually being directive and let me tell myself what action to take to being more about getting out of your own way so i want to sort of almost distract my brain so i can let my body just do what it needs to do because if i try to direct it and think too much, then I'm actually gonna mess up instead of just allowing my body to do what it's done a million times. So I would say it changes throughout the life cycle of learning something. Mm. So it, later I would say things to myself, like just the name of the trick, trust yourself, you can do this and just go for it. I didn't have to give myself any kind of technique or, or um, and, and would you find as you're doing that, that your use of visualization changed at the same time, or did you change your visualization before? Like, were you aspirational in your visualization? Like, I'm going to get to the point where I can just, you know, tell myself, Dan, do this thing before I'm actually really able to do it or, or only afterwards? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm trying to think back and kind of remember what I was feeling. Um, yeah. I can tell you maybe how I approached it before my last world championships. Sure. Or maybe that's helpful. So when I was visualizing going into that final competition, a lot of what I wanted was to actually control for negative thoughts. So I was less worried about reminding myself to do certain things in my routine and more worried about, I don't want self doubt to come in at any point during before or during my routine. So I approached it in those two sections. Okay, I need to think about what I want to think before and then what I want to think during. And now mm -hmm. another thing to, to point out is that this is a very controlled environment, right? I knew exactly what it was going to be like. I knew I was going to have five minutes in the holding area and then I knew I was going to walk out onto the floor and then I knew I was going to have a two and a half minute routine and I knew exactly what was going to be in that routine where you know, in your environment, there isn't that uh, control necessarily. You, you're going to come in and it's going to be different every time. So it's the same in other sports like surfing, where you're actually needing to interact with your environment. Mine was very controlled. So this doesn't work in every scenario. But for me, I wanted, I actually wrote myself a script. So I, I wrote a letter to myself and I memorized it. I had it in my pocket and I, anytime I felt a little bit of self-doubt come out, I would pull it out and I would read it. And I did that for probably two or three weeks before that competition. I carried that letter with me everywhere. And so by the time uh, that competition came up, I knew that I had it completely memorized. And in that five minute holding period, I just repeated that to myself over and over and over again. And that's all I thought 
or five minutes was what I wrote to myself in that letter. And then same thing during my visualization, I actually used keywords. So I took it one step further instead of just visualizing the picture of what I was doing and how it felt. I also gave myself words to use that were attached to each moment in the routine. And so what that did besides just remind me of what I needed to do was also not allow any other thoughts kind of come in. It was just, I'm going to think this and then this, this just goes through. Um, and so I would say that's how my visualization evolved. And that's what I did at the very end of, of my career I was very specific about what I was going to think and when. So one thing that we talk about and, and that we've has sort of been a common theme among people using using visualization in or out of the emergency department is, is something that you you said that I think deserves some highlighting, which is sort of the multimodal nature of visualization, right? Like there is like when you first start, when I first started learning visualization to, to visualize my performance in a resuscitation or with a skill, uh, I would often be very unidimensional about it. Like I would imagine what it looked like, or I would. I would imagine what my hands were doing. And it would be this very sort of small focused kind of tiny movie about stuff. And as I've gotten better at it, it's come to become more like what you're describing, which is this very rich multi-textural environment that has uh, sound and you know kinesthetic cues in it and certain words I want to say to myself, maybe even how I'm feeling or sort of what I'm hearing or what's happening. And the more detailed and rich I can make that, the more useful that is. And there's this interesting sort of play with it, which is that you can spend some time in this totally immersive environment, and then you can boil it down to these couple of key moments, these keywords, like what you're describing. And I think that's a really useful exercise for folks listening to this is you're going to take whatever skill you're going to do. Like we usually start training visualization when it comes to intubation, placing a breathing tube, which is a high risk scenario that requires a lot of detailed physical movement, but also a uh, conceptual framework around how you're performing the task and why. So it, it really lends itself to visualization. Um, so, so if you're listening to this and, and I want you to think about sort of like how multimodal Kristen's describing this versus how maybe unimodal you'll, you're doing your initial visualization and a cool challenge is to sort of expand that. So what are you hearing in the background? Where are your feet? Where are your, where are the different pieces of your body that maybe aren't the primary movers that you're operating with? And how could you expand that to figure that out? Um, I also think it's, it's incredible the way you're describing this about really like creating such a positive force that it doesn't leave the space for negative things to come in. I think that's really underutilized for us um, because in as much as we don't have necessarily a you know, setup of, okay, I get five minutes in the holding tank or whatever you called it, probably not the holding tank, but, you know, <laughs> and then moving on to what I'm going to do, we do have these moments of calm in the middle of the storm of what we're doing. It's never a full bore sprint all the time, right? There's always this back and forth and you can create, you can create scripts for yourself that you can fire in these small sort of quiet moments as you move forward. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a case we had last week where, you know, we got a one minute warning before um, a patient came in, like this person is throwing up a lot of blood and they're super sick and we need to be able to like, we need to get ready to take their airway immediately. Okay. How do you prepare? You get one minute and you know, you're sort of like running into it and all right, we're setting up, we're setting up, we're setting up. And then 
about halfway through that minute, they were like, oh, just kidding. It's actually room four, not room six. And you're like, oh man. Okay. And then you, you run over to the other room and try to reset everything up. But along the way, like even with that limitation to it, what you're describing is so rich and so powerful. This idea of setting yourself up for success ahead of time by creating this space where success is likely to happen. Um, so I, I guess to, to turn my like soapbox here into a question, I, I guess I will I guess I'll ask for some advice about that. Like if you were to do it again, but you were to do it in a much more chaotic environment that sort of reflects the way that we run a lot of our stuff. Like you get some number of minutes, but you don't know how many. And at any point they might pull you away. And oh, by the way, the color of the ground might change and the temperature and the lights and everything else. And there might be music or there might not be. What what might you do differently in that circumstance? Like how could we use some of what you're what you're saying to prepare ourselves? Okay, so I think I think that's relevant here is a book that I'm actually in the middle of, and it's called The Checklist Manifesto. You read it? Great book. Okay, yeah. So I think that's something I've been thinking about more lately is how do you automate in your, how do you create those subconscious layers so that you can just focus on the variables that are changing and be present for those? Um, and so that's sort of what I'm getting out of this book. It's when in really complex, chaotic environments, you want to have the things that are predictable laid out so that when cortisol and adrenaline are involved, your brain isn't being hijacked by those things and you're able to execute in the order that you need to execute. And so that's sort of what I'm thinking about incorporating more into my daily life now that's not sports related is, okay, how can I free up my mind to focus on the things that are important and changing? And how can I create routine for all of the unimportant things so that they're somewhat automated and subconscious? And so I think that is a lot of what we did in sport as well. And I just didn't realize it. You know, I remember being able to talk to my coach through my entire warm-up and i'd be doing flips and different things and handstands and you know i but it was so i did the same thing every day for so many years that prep that i could literally talk about my day while i did it and so it just becomes so ingrained that then when the variables change you can just focus on those now i'm not sure if that's relevant but that's just something I've been thinking about as I've been reading this book. Yeah, I think that's hugely relevant. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about the idea of um, cognitive offloading through cognitive aids and the ability to sort of limit your attention span to the most, the things that will be most useful and give you the most impact, which tends to be sort of a Venn diagram between like from a stoic philosophy concept of where do you have control in the universe? And then also like, what is the actual movers for this particular circumstance? And the, like, if you mash those two things together, that middle ground tends to be the most rich for where to focus and automating and allowing systems to take care of the other pieces of that is a, is like a really useful and really important point. Um, what does that look like for you? Like, like in your life, in your life now, uh, what experiments are you running around that? Like, how are you setting up your day to day to actually like practice that and, and, and bring that into fruition? Yeah, I definitely, I want to talk about that, but I also want to come back to your previous question a little bit more and think about 
if you're thinking about how to prep for something that is chaotic, I would think another thing that would be really important would be to figure out how to control those spikes of, of cortisol and adrenaline and to maintain that focused mindset to be able to handle those things. Um, and so I would think that that's twofold. It's sort of what's actively happening in the moment and how you can use your brain and re body resources to kind of calm down and be focused. But then also I think there's sort of passive factors, which is what you're doing before and around that to prepare to have that calm mindset. So, and I think that's the piece and you're asking me kind of what I would change now. I think that's the piece I would have thought about a lot more is how does my rest and recovery affect what I'm doing in the moment of whatever the physical thing is. Um, and that's just not something we focused on much. It's always just work harder, focus on what's in the moment, but we don't think about how all of these other factors affect us, like stress and lack of sleep, nutrition. And so I think when you can be more resilient, you can be so much more resilient in those high stress environments when your body and mind are prepared for them. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's a good segue necessarily, but yeah, no, um, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I, I think that you know, like we tend to conceive, like within the emergency mind project, we tend to use this framework, this cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve as like the pieces of what it takes to actually do well under pressure. And I, I, you know, if you ask me what I'm working, what I'm spending the most time in my own life working on, it's this recover piece, trying to figure out how to come home from work and be a human again, and, and sort of like figure out what these background strategies are. But, but I, I love the way that you said that about like the difference between passive tools and systems and factors and active tools and systems and factors. And like, what do you set up in your life that allows you to be at the place you need to be at in order to even, in order to even step on the mat, probably. Um, what, what does that look like for you? What are, what are the, you know, if you, if you peel back the layers here a little bit, like what are the passive factors that are, that are active in your life right now? Sure. Yeah. I think the passive factors for me are a couple of things. There's sort of creating that routine cognitive offloading talked about. Um, then there's also thinking about sleep, um, community, nutrition, mental health, and how all of those things integrate to sort of keep me at my best self. Um, and we can kind of go into each of those and what they look like for me. But um, I think a big part of it is really understanding the mechanism of why these things are important um you know and why maybe i react more strongly to certain things than other things and and digging in and, and when i understand the mechanism and i understand why something's happening and what i can do about it then i can kind of move those factors around in my life to help me deal with all of it i didn't explain that very well but um i think that i i guess maybe to back up there's sort of two parts of it there's the awareness and then the mechanism behind it so there's being aware of okay when i don't sleep well i don't perform well or when i don't eat well i don't perform well or i get really triggered by these certain things in my life but then there's why why do those things happen and understanding the mechanism and for me it's at a 
I like to know what's happening in my brain and my body on a biochemical level. And understanding those things helps me make those decisions and, um, and then run these experiments, right? To be able to, to be better um, in a passive way so that when it comes time to perform in that active moment, I'm ready. And what are, what are the sort of unifying tools that, that allow you to do this kind of work? Like, are you a journaler? Do you, you know, keep great track of sort of what you're doing and compare it to uh, what you feel? Do, do you, do you use as your metric to get really nerdy about it as some of your like independent and dependent variables here? Like, are you using like your internal sense of how you feel or are you, are you tracking various metrics about yourself? Like in some way, I imagine that's easier or that might've been easier when you were performing all the time in front of other people that gave you like an external framework of how you're doing. Um, but I think a, a real challenge is how do you do that when, when there's not necessarily like an external framework of is something succeeding or not? We're like in our world, you know, we try to decouple performance from outcome because you can be an incredible doctor and run a great team and the patient can still die because their die was cast before they got to you. So you have to, you have to learn how to separate that from like, did you do a good job or not? Yeah. I, I love what you said about that. I think it's really important to not let the outcomes define you stay present with the process and the work. Um, remind me of. Yeah, <laughs> this is, this is like, God, this is, this is so cool, Kristen. You're, you're just like hitting all of these things that I've been like, like vaguely connecting lately. But, um, okay. So uh, the question was, um, what are some of the things that you measure or reflect on in yourself in order to help yeah, you figure how, out? How like, yeah. Yeah. So I am definitely part of this whole human performance world and some people call it biohacking, whatever. But surprisingly, I am not somebody who really tracks or measures myself that well. Um, I don't use any wearables currently. That may change. Um, I, I look at them all and I know what's out there, um, especially from an investor standpoint, which is what I do now. But um, but I don't currently use any. Uh, I mostly go by feel, unless it's something more acute, like if I'm prepping for a surgery or recovering from a surgery, um, or I'm in a period where I'm, I'm really not feeling well, then, and I'm wondering why, then maybe I'll start tracking that more closely. Um, I have chronic pain from an injury. So uh, when I was really going through the acute part of that, I would track my mood and my pain on a just one to 10 scale every day. So I could just sort of see, okay, there's a correlation here. I would track my food, things like that. But I try not to be too measured about it because I think there's a, a balance there between living your life and you know constantly looking at every metric that you're doing. Now, one thing I really do like to do is blood analysis because I think that's really helpful for understanding what's happening biochemically. And I also, because of my um, chronic pain condition, it's helpful for me to know if I have the right nutrients. So I have nerves that are constantly being prepared. So I am often very, very low in those things. And it's helpful for me to know that so I can change my diet accordingly. Um, so I do think that regular 
blood testing of, of biomarkers can be incredibly helpful. It's also expensive, and I'm hoping that costs will go down soon because um, I think it's just so important for preventative health care to know what's happening. If you're completely deficient in a certain B vitamin, you know, it affects all of these other processes happening in your body. You won't be able to make serotonin properly or whatever else. So anyways, it's a whole other conversation, but um, that's something I, I do. But as far as my day to day, I really just try to think about, I think it's most easy to see in things that you do every day. So if I'm just finding I'm having a hard time focusing on getting through emails, you know, there's probably something going on there. Maybe my blood sugar is low. Maybe I didn't sleep well. Maybe my mind is going through a million other things and too stressed. So then I might want to do some kind of intervention to help that. And it might not help me that day, but it might help me the next day. And I can kind of see how that's improving over time. Oh, I've noticed, you know, and I try to reflect back every so often and see, okay, you know, I had a much better month this month than last month. And so, you know, why did I eat better more consistently? What were those, what were those things? And I can kind of try to change those accordingly. Um, but I'm currently obsessed with this podcast called the Huberman lab. Oh, so good. Yeah. So good. Yeah, huge right? fan. And this is one thing he loves to talk about is if you understand the mechanism, then you can control those interventions and, and you, you don't have to live this super intense controlled life. You can just realize, Oh, I didn't sleep as well. I'm falling asleep too late. Okay. There are things I can do to help shift my clock back. And, you know, it's just a work in progress all the time. Um, so yeah, if you haven't heard his podcast for anybody listening, it's, it's really great. And I, I'm religious about getting my light every morning before 9am. Got to get outside. Um, it's what helps program your internal clock and I sleep so much better and I used to not be a morning person at all, but, uh, I can now wake up at a reasonable hour and, <laughs> and have my brain function. Um, thanks to just getting light in the morning. So, mm. um, yeah, I'm a, a big advocate for some of these, just, just understanding how your body works and, and what you can do to, to improve just such a basic level. Yeah. And it, it, something that's so uh, sort of somewhat hidden under what you're saying is this idea that like, like what works for you is unique and has to be sort of discovered and iterated and experimented about. So there's some general trends, right? Like, like certainly we could make up a diet and an exercise profile and a life profile that would make all of us suck a lot more. Like that's a, that's <laughs> yeah. a pretty easy problem, right? <laughs> But it's a little bit harder to figure out like what's optimal, like what makes Kristen optimal Kristen and Dan optimal Dan. And like, how can you set yourself up as much as possible um, to really be able to hit, uh, to hit your performance in the way that you need to. Yeah. And then you, know, you, you get sort of to this idea that like um, uh Rich Devine, the guy who wrote the book, The Attributes, talks about, he's going to be on the podcast in not too long. He talks about this difference between peak performance and optimal performance, with peak performance being you get all the time and energy in the world to get yourself up to a very particular moment, and then that's when you have to perform at your best. And optimal performance being this idea of sort of how can you 
on average perform at the top of your ability given a variable or changing set of circumstances. Those are subtly different problems that we sort of all need to explore. Like everybody in this world needs to explore both sets of those problems. Uh, and, and I think a real commonality between them is this idea of getting the passive factors right and then learning how to run the active factors. And my suspicion would be that over time, as, as I change as a human, as I hopefully continue to get older, knock on wood, uh, I will continue to change what those passive factors need to be and how they need to be. Because I would imagine that as our workload and our bodies change, both independently and relative to each other, then we need to redo these experiments. There's not like an endpoint where we figure everything out. I'm like, oh, great. I'm just going to do this every day for the rest of my life. Um, so as you're thinking about that, as you're thinking about these things every day, um, and you look back across sort of the arc of what we've been talking about, what are some of the things that have stayed constant? What are some of the things that have worked for you from the beginning that you still do that are sort of your like go-to standbys? And what are maybe some things that you do really differently now than you used to? You know, I think it's a work in progress. <laughs> um, I think that in sport, which is a highly controlled environment, structured, and, you know, if you're really good at controlling the variables, then you'll do well. Um, going into sort of, I guess, real life where, where things are unstructured and they change all the time, um, you find that a lot of things don't transfer over as much as as much as we like to say like there are all these transferable skills and of course a work ethic and self-confidence and uh discipline i i guess there are things that that definitely transfer but you find that there's a lot of work to be done on on kind of breaking down these barriers and maybe coping mechanisms that worked really well in sport don't work so well out of it. Um, one example is compartmentalizing. I would say that was my superpower in sport. I could just turn on and off emotion um, and kind of dissociate, go somewhere else, get a, you know, pain, whatever, um, which is great in sport. Uh, it's super helpful. Um, in real life, not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> not helpful it's important to feel your emotions <laughs> as i've learned um and and deal with them in a in a healthy way you know kind of acknowledging them communicating about them right these are the things you need to be able to do in a relationship and friendships at work um and uh you know just shutting down emotion and like pushing it down into some deep dark hole um, is not is not a good thing to do. I've learned and creates a lot of stress in the long run. And it doesn't provide you that foundation that we're talking about, which is those passive factors that add up and create this foundation so you can perform when it counts. Um, the suppressing emotion is one of those things that creates cracks in that foundation. So healthy coping mechanisms are important. Um, yeah, that's so salient for a lot of us in the in the healthcare space these days, as I think we're, you know, 
over the last year have really redefined our relationship with suffering and loss and pain in, in these very, um, very real ways. And, uh, you know, I know the conversations that I'm having at work with various people revolve a lot around this to say, hey, like, you know, we're all, we're all coming to this understanding that you know, we had some ability to disassociate and push things down. And now we're seeing these cracks coming into that foundation. And what do you do about that? How do you, how do you put emphasis on the recovery phase and on rebuilding your foundation, even as you're still trying to be out there and, and pushing yourself day to day through your, through your shifts? Yeah. And I think one thing that's also changed is in sport and in, in many high performers, there's this lone wolf mentality of, I am sort of better alone. I can, I'm on my own island. I'm different. I have this mindset that no one else can touch. And that's what gets me through. When, when we look at the research, you know, this, the studies on longevity, the people who live the longest, the studies on the people who are the most resilient to stress, they're the people who have really rich and solid communities. And those relationships are the key to resilience in stressful situations, and they're also the key to longevity. And so that is something that has really shifted for me post-sport, going from this, I'm on my own island, lone wolf mindset to community first kind of mindset. Um, it's really, and going back to what you were saying about dealing with grief and, and suffering, if you have a safe space to talk about that and and share it and and feel it, then you can get through it so much easier and you don't suppress it and you don't create those cracks in the foundation. And so I think community is a key piece of all of this. What does that look like for you? You know, when, when you say that that you're switching from lone wolf to a, a community sort of focus, what what are you doing differently? What's that? What's that look like? Yeah, I think it. When we look at the sort of the world's hardest workers, right? They tend to sacrifice the important moments in in their lives and other people's lives. You know, it didn't matter to me if I was working on my birthday or somebody else's birthday, um, and I would put that goal and accomplishment sort of ahead of those other things. Well, I can't because I'm doing this thing, you know, and and so it's sort of, a, it's, it's a shift in mindset of, okay, it's really going to get me where I want to be. It's going to that thing. It's being there. It's showing up for the people in my life just as much as they show up for me. Um, and, you know, and then I think another big part of that is communication, right? If you, if you can't be there, you, you can't just disappear, um, which... I do and still do. And shout out to my friends who tolerate me. Um, my terrible texting, but um, but you know it's it's some it's a work in progress for me for sure. Communicating how I'm feeling, what's happening with me, um, to to build those relationships and and being vulnerable to people in your life. And I think that's what really builds those deeper bonds. Kristen, this has been amazing. And there's like so many deeper directions and dives to take off of this. Um, before we wrap this up, uh, I want to give you a chance to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this. So, so if they could do something differently after this or something differently tomorrow, um, what is it that you want them to do? What do you want them to try? 
thinking about not just awareness of yourself and what's happening to you, but trying to think about, okay, then why? You know, what is, what is this mechanism? What could I do to, uh, what could I change to, to see if that changes what's actually happening? Because we always talk about awareness being key, but I really think it, it's what do you do with that awareness that actually makes a difference in, in health and wellness and performance. So I think the Huberman Lab podcast is a great place to start understanding mechanism, understanding you know, taking that awareness to the next level. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking. And this has just been like a great, amazing conversation. And I feel like I've learned a ton about, about both like better conceptualizing the passive and active factors that I'm using and, and have a list of things I want to start doing differently. So thank you, Kristen. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this and I look forward to listening to the podcast more and, and learning more about what you do. Hopefully there's next time. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.